This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. So maybe we can all start telling our secrets. (laughs) So what I would like to do today is talk about a really workable way that I have found in my own practice to create a foundation for resting in my heart. And I'd like to start out by telling two stories about being in the heart. Both happened in India. Uh, The first story was the first time I went to India, and I was in Banaras, which I guess now it's called Varanasi, of course. In Banaras, there are and were many beggars. It's very auspicious to donate while you are on pilgrimage. So consequently, at the main bathing ghat in Benares, there are probably a hundred beggars lined up in a row. Uh, And I decided that I would be a really good guy, and I changed a bunch of money into a whole pocket full of coins. To set the setting, it was about 115 degrees. It's supposedly, at that point, the most crowded square mile on the planet, just wall-to-wall people, total chaos, dusty, and really rough cobblestone streets. So I am going down this row of people, and most of them had a begging bowl, and I would put a coin in each person's begging bowl after looking them in the eye and trying to connect with them. And as I'm doing this, I came to somebody who stopped me. It was a very young woman who had leprosy. She had no hands and no feet. She was on a platform that was maybe like 30 inches by 30 inches, with wheels maybe three inches high, so she was down there on the ground strapped to her chest with filthy, dirty rags, was a tiny, tiny baby. And as I saw this tableau, my mind kind of snapped, and I felt that I couldn't just give her a coin. So I reached in my other pocket and pulled out a relatively large note, currency, rupee, several rupee note, 
and I put it in her begging bowl. She looked down at the money, and her expression began to change. She looked up at me. She looked like she was getting angry, which kind of surprised me. She looked back at the bowl, and she angrily knocked it. The money went flying, and she had rusty tin cans shoved on the stumps of her wrists. And she began to angrily propel herself away, pushing herself with these tin can-covered stumps. End of the story. I'm standing there feeling confused. Should I be embarrassed? What just happened? And it took me a day or two to guess that what had happened was that she could feel that I felt pity for her. That I, you remember how I said that the Dalai Lama says one of the qualities of compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another person. And I thought, I'm this guy who just got my PhD at Stanford and I'm here to help you. And you are this leper. But beyond that, the, the baby was what really freaked me out. It reminded me, not in my mind, but in some very visceral way, of how I felt frightened as a small baby, was I going to survive? What I needed to do was have compassion for the scared Dale. That there was no way that I could relate to her, smile at her, talk to her, be with her in any meaningful way until I was able to admit that that baby terrified me and that I could love my inner child, if I can use that trite expression. And I didn't have the humility and the depth of awareness at that point to be able to do that. When I was a very little baby, and we'll get to why this is part of the story in a few minutes, my earliest memory was I was crawling across the floor. I can still remember the pattern of the carpet. The light was coming in diagonally from the right side. I was crawling. I felt I was the best crawler in the world. I was like so ecstatically happy to be crawling. And I saw on the, my dad was over there shaving with one of those sleeveless t-shirts on, soap on his face. And in front of me on the floor, was this metal object with two prongs. It was a bobby pin. And what was on the wall in front of me but two holes that were exactly as far apart as those two prongs? And I thought, in my preverbal state, isn't this the neatest thing? These two things obviously go in those two things. I mean, this is fantastic. And I put that in those, and that was my first memory. It knocked me across the room. And I got the message that this is not a safe place. And that by following my curiosity, I can get almost dead. Okay. Another early memory was that I was, I'm old enough that I was being fed according to Dr. Spock on schedule. Right? 
And my parents were very loving parents. I had great parents. But they gave me a bottle, a glass bottle in those days. I dropped it and it broke. By the time that they could sterilize the bottle and reheat some formula, it was past the time in the schedule that they should feed me. So they didn't feed me for four hours. My grandfathers are saying, the kid's hungry, feed him. What are you doing? You're crazy. And they said, no, no, this is the new scientific way. So that even though I had pretty great parents, I had these traumas very early in life. And that baby in Varanasi, that little child strapped with those filthy, dirty rags to the woman with rusty tin cans shoved on the ends of her wrist stumps, resonated the fears that I had experienced way back at that point. Story number two. I was in uh, Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama before he became famous. And a couple of satsang members, we, we were actually... Actually, I'm sorry, it wasn't Dharamsala, it was Bodh Gaya. We were doing some Goenka retreats. And it was between... Goenka retreats, the Dalai Lama was there, he was doing a Kala Chakra empowerment. And three of us, and the Dalai Lama and his translator, were there in a room. Now, according to the Tibetans, the Dalai Lama is the incarnation of Chinrezi, Avalokiteshwar, the god of compassion. He is the embodiment of compassion on this plane of existence. Bodh Gaya is a very, very poor town, and it had about 20 or 30 feral dogs running around in the town. The dogs were so neglected that you could see their ribs through their skin. They had opened sores on their, on their bodies. And the people in the town said, please don't feed the dogs. Let them starve to death. It's the kindest thing to do. And being a softy, I was buying day-old food, and sneaking behind buildings and feeding the dogs. There we were with the Dalai Lama, the head of the Tibetan state and the head of the Tibetan religion at that time, no longer the head of the Tibetan state, just the religion. And he said, which do you think is greater? I am the Dalai Lama, or these 20 or 30 starving dogs in Bodh Gaya? And one of my two friends said, well, you're the Dalai Lama. You're much greater than they are. And he said, no, I am one and they are many. I am equal to one of those dogs. And at first I thought he was saying this as a teaching story, that he was saying this as a way to get us to understand more clearly what compassion really is. But as those words resonated in me, I got that he really felt that he was equal to one mangy dog. And here I was, just coming from Stanford, just coming from who I was doing all those things. And it just shook me to my core, as did that woman. So how can we find a foundation in our body, our energetic body, so that we can go through our life, and when we see a schizophrenic homeless person, when we see 
Donald Trump, when we see a wounded animal on the side of the road, that we can remain equal to that being, we can be connected, we can keep a spacious heart, rather than to have to pull back in a role in the way that Ramdas was talking about being a father and being a son. When we're in a role, it's very protective. It's a way of not being touched by the pain that this other being, this other animal or person might be feeling. Can we find a way to have the strength and the courage to be with the suffering that is in the world and in ourselves? How can we deal with that fear that in a very unconscious, compulsive way, gets us again and again to pull back. So what I've found is that many people who meditate tend to use meditation as a way of going up and out, going beyond suffering, using it as a way to kind of escape. And I mentioned even yesterday that the, that the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, said that uh, Americans don't like themselves. And I think that's because that we really haven't dealt with some of this early childhood stuff, that it's very difficult to disentangle spirituality from psychology. I run the Living Dying Project. We offer, quote, spiritual support, unquote, to people who are dying. And in my 35 years of doing this, there are probably only a handful of people that I have helped guide in their dying process who did not present major psychological stuff uh, that was right there in the face that was preventing plunging into the deep spiritual material. My mother was one of those people. Uh, a couple other people come to mind. But the psychological and the spiritual are so intertwined that it really is almost impossible to disentangle them. A lot of spirituality, a lot of what we were doing last night when we were singing was about going into the heart and then going into the wisdom mind, uh, the seventh chakra going into infinite spaciousness. But very often we neglect the first, second, and third chakras. The first chakra, the base, is what a hypothetical little girl who was being born would learn from the second trimester to two years old. The, second, the first chakra is about being grounded. It's trusting that you are supported and nourished. And the demon of that stage of development, as Piaget or anyone would tell you, is fear. So that whenever there is fear, there is not groundedness. What I needed to do when I was confronting the woman with leprosy was get grounded, get back out of my head, drop down and say, okay, I'm feeling fear now, I can, I can drop down below that. There is very little, very little literature about grounding because it is assumed in all the Eastern writings that you are grounded already. That that you are connected with the 
earth. There is a sense of support. And it was really only when I got into some somatic therapy, maybe 10 years ago, no, maybe 20 years ago, that I really began to have that as a support for my practice. Before I got grounded, I was going to a lot of meditation retreats. Uh, and some of the teachers were saying, you're a very talented meditator, Dale. Goenka gave me a special room to meditate in. And I would have these remarkable, wonderful experiences. The retreat would be over. And a day later, I would be 99.9% as neurotic as I had been at the beginning of the, tr- uh, of, of the retreat. I was not able to integrate all these wonderful experiences into relationship, into work, into living my life. And as a meditation teacher, a label which I say with great trepidation, actually, if meditation is only something we do with our eyes closed, sitting still, it's really not very interesting or useful. Uh, The workshop is called Compassion in Action. It's not called Compassion on the Cushion. It's called, here's what we're, how can we bring our hearts into politics, relationship, job, all these different things. So uh, in a few minutes, we'll do a meditation, a short guided meditation that brings in this quality of being grounded. When I'm grounded and I will actually try to do that right now rather than being so excited about what I'm talking about. Uh, A lot of my practice is can can I be centered and grounded and just let the words, the actions come then out of my heart. Because if you're not inhabiting the lower part of your being, the heart is only going to feel safe to remain open when the environment is supportive. If the environment is not supportive and you're not there in this present way, the heart is going to close. So second trimester to two years old, learning to be grounded, learning to be centered, I mean, learning to be grounded, trusting the sense of groundedness, the antidote to fear. Trusting that you can be dependent. You're trusting the mother in all levels of the mother. Mother Earth, Mother Mother, Divine Mother. Around the age of two, these numbers are approximate, the terrible twos begin because this little child is going from being dependent to being independent and testing what it's like to be an autonomous human being, going back and forth from independence to dependence, learning to be centered, the lower belly, the second and third chakra, the place from which martial arts are done. And the fact that a tiny, frail, elderly martial arts master can defeat a huge, young novice is because it is not his or her chi that is being used in the encounter. It's the energy of the universe. When we're inhabiting the lower belly, then activity flows through us in a very natural way. And we then have the ability to start going beyond these roles that Ramdas was talking about. The 
demons of inhabiting this part of your body are guilt and shame. You begin to be an independent person, and your mother says, no, you can't make noise now because your father's on the telephone. Or, no, you can't draw on the wall with the crayons. You have to draw on the paper. Or, no, you shouldn't be pissing on the rug. Or, uh, you have to learn the rules you can't trust just being who you are. You have to become socialized. And to a certain extent, we do have to become socialized. But to the extent we trust our innate wisdom, it creates problems that make it very difficult finally to inhabit our heart. So around the age of five or so, we begin to get into conscious relationship, five to eight. And now we're opening the heart. We're being with another person in a, a conscious relationship. And the uh, energetic quality, we've learned to be grounded, we've learned to be centered. What quality do you think this little girl needs to learn in order to be in conscious, appropriate relationship? Compassion. Well, compassion will come out of that. It, it, it's an energetic quality. It's appropriate boundaries. And generally when I say boundaries, people groan because they know that that's where a lot of their suffering comes from, not having appropriate boundaries. Okay, so I think it's pretty intuitively clear that for me to be with that leper or for you to be with somebody who's suffering, appropriate boundaries are crucial. And these boundaries aren't going to work too well if there's not a centered person who's inhabiting the belly, who's doing the martial art of being you. The energy that creates the boundary is the energy that we accumulate in our belly, the chi, the shakti, the prana. Okay, so grounded, centered, appropriate boundaries, inhabiting the heart. And now we can really begin to bring compassion into action. Uh, And we can go beyond then objectifying people. We, we will be caught in objectifying people when we don't trust our autonomy, we don't trust our strength. So what we've done here is talk about creating a foundation for being in the heart of compassion, for bringing compassion into action. Compassion is a great idea. And... Uh, that poem by Thich Nhat Hanh, where he talks about having compassion for the pirate who raped the little girl, as well as having compassion for the girl. Did I talk, talk about, uh, about my brother having cancer a couple days ago? I think I did, didn't I? How it's so easy to have compassion for my brother. Can you have compassion for the doctor who told my brother he was dying in an after-hours email? instead of being able to do it face-to-face. -face. Okay, so uh, most people don't have the foundation to be a warrior of compassion. Payment Children has this wonderful quote 
that I've said so many times, I almost know it by heart, I'm going to mangle it a little bit, but that's okay. She says that love and compassion both lead to the awakened heart, to bodhicitta. But compassion is much more difficult because it requires feeling your pain. Compassion practice is daring. It requires you being a warrior. Compassion practice means you have to find the, the trust to move into your pain instead of compulsively pulling away from it. Okay, so before we do this guided meditation, I threw out a whole bunch of uh, theoretical material about psychology and the energy body. Are there any remarks or questions about that? Yeah, please. Can you please go more into the appropriate boundaries? <laughs> <laughs> Can I please go more into appropriate boundaries? Boundaries... We often think of boundaries as a way of excluding what's di difficult and dangerous out there. Boundaries can also include. The Dalai Lama says that before he gives a talk, before he goes into the auditorium, he visualizes Amitabha Buddha so big that the whole auditorium is inside of Amitabha Buddha's heart. So that then when he goes into the auditorium, what could go wrong? He's an Abhitama Buddha's heart. I mean, could we imagine right now that this room is all inside of Maharaji? Would, how would that change this conversation? So, on a bit more practical note, when one learns to do this horror breathing, which we'll do in just a few minutes, and a, a, you're accumulating strength in your lower belly. That's the energy we use to create a boundary with. A boundary can be big, a boundary can be small, a boundary can be dense, a boundary can be diffuse. So there's four combinations, a big diffuse boundary, a big dense boundary, a small diffuse boundary, a small dense boundary. I don't go around thinking about this, but when I notice that there's a boundary problem, then I say, what's going on? And I try to work with that. So, like, if you're stuck in a certain boundary configuration unconsciously, that creates problems. Like the big, dense boundary, that's the bull in a china shop. Somebody comes into the room, they don't care how it's affecting other people. They take over the room. They're being who they are. And sometimes that's useful, but often it can get you in trouble. A big, diffuse boundary... Uh, I had a woman in one of my groups who was so bothered by what was happening to the planet that every week we would get together and she would check in and she would start crying about what was happening to the trees and the water and the air. And she was so bothered by this that she was really paralyzed. She was stuck in a big open boundary so that all the energy was coming in all the time. It's useful at times, to feel. Like if I'm facilitating a room full of people like now, occasionally it's nice to open up and feel what's happening in the room. And notice that and then maybe adjust what's going on. But if I'm stuck there, it becomes overwhelming. When we were back in New York with Joya, uh, we were doing this very intense meditation practice. And I remember once 
There was three days where I did not have one negative thought form. I was meditating so much. And I thought, I am really a meditator. I'm going to do this test. I'm going to go to the corner of 6th Avenue and 42nd Street and open my boundary to the flow of humanity. And within five minutes, I felt like throwing up. <laughs> that there was so much aggression and so much anger walking up and down the sidewalks of Manhattan that even super meditating Ramdev was not able to deal with that. Did not work. Okay. So uh, another time, Stephen Levine and I were leading a conscious dying retreat in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And a woman was there who was dying. And in fact, we thought that she very well might die during the workshop. She was radiant. She was uh, a lawyer. Those two things can go together, apparently. <laughs> and, uh, but she didn't die. Her husband came, put her in the back of the station wagon, and drove her back to Mill Valley. Uh, I was living in Berkeley at the time, and a few days later, I got a phone call saying, if you want to see Behan again, you should come right away. So I drove over the bridge to Mill Valley, and that, uh, her house was situated so that she was just a few minutes from the freeway. And I came to her bedside, and I started relating to her as if she were the person I had been with two days before. And something started feeling really weird. My thoughts and words felt like bowling ball. They were so clunky. And I realized that she was not that person of two days ago. She was two days closer to death, which happened a day or two later. And that I needed to open up my boundary and let her in and be with her. And at that point, we didn't even need to talk anymore. We were both just sitting there in bliss. But because I hadn't opened up, because I hadn't really felt what was going on in the room, I just I was in a role. I'm Dale from what, what at that point was called the Dying Project. I changed the name to the Living Dying Project because I got tired of explaining to people they didn't have to promise to die to work with us. <laughs> or on the other hand, that the Dying Project was not a project that itself was dying. Right, it's a dying project. <laughs> okay. So it's kind of like going to the gym. You can practice with your boundaries. Like right now, could you breathe into your belly, and then you breathe out a boundary that's as big as your skin. You breathe into your belly, and you breathe out a boundary that's as big as your as your uh, your or maybe six, 12 inches bigger than your skin. Can you breathe into your belly and breathe out a boundary that's as big as this room, that includes all the people in this room? So if each of us has a boundary that's as big as this room, then there's one energy body in this room. We're one energy being, and it's a very different room. It's a very different conversation we're going to have. We can all go back and just be in our skin, and you're listening, and I'm talking, and then you're talking, and I'm listening, and that's a different thing. Going back to the, the story I told about going to Bay Hunt's bedside, uh, when I opened up my boundary, I could feel what needed... To, before I opened up my boundary, something felt wrong. So I opened it up, and something changed. So if I'm assuming 
that because I'm the guy who's talking and that so I can hug everybody and I'm hugging somebody and it doesn't and my boundaries open I'll be able to feel a disturbance in the energy out there that this person I'm hugging maybe doesn't want to be hugged and I'll say oh I'm I'm sorry I made an assumption there pardon me so that by being centered being being centered what does it mean to be centered these are developmental stages, and you really can't have appropriate boundaries until you're centered. Centered is just like the word implies. You are centered, and you're feeling what's going on around you, but you're not being thrown off-center by the activity. It's like you're at the still point of all that's going on. And once again, that's how martial arts are done, that you're still, even in the midst of potentially violent activity, you are not losing yourself in that activity. Uh, we could have a whole conversation, and we're, we're not going to, about Tantra. Uh, tantric living, tantric sexuality, tantric eating, tantric being together, where we're working with that energy all the time instead of getting lost in it. Instead of, I remember once I was at a Vipassana retreat. It was toward the end of the retreat, and for breakfast, among other things, we had grapefruit sections. And I bit into my grapefruit section, and the little sacks of grapefruit juice, that is a piece of grapefruit, were exploding in my mouth. And it was ecstatic. I was in this tantric relationship with a piece of grapefruit. And I realized that I had never really tasted a grapefruit before. I would start biting into it, and I'd say, this is a good one, this one's a little dry, I'd rather have an orange, you know, whatever. But instead, it was all that was going on was grapefruit eating. And can, can we do the same thing with hugging another person? And my guess is, though, that if you're really doing that in a genuine way, you, 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 you will feel if it's something the other person is uh, holding at a distance and that maybe you should back up. So we're going to just do this really quick guided, it's not even a meditation, just a way of being in your body, you can close your eyes or not, you don't have to close your eyes. As you breathe out, imagine that you're pushing an energetic egg out through the base of your torso, so that you're, you're inhabiting the base, you're inhabiting the perineum and the upper adductor muscles, the upper inner thigh. In-breath is easy and natural. The out-breath, you're pushing out down through the base. Out-breath a little stronger. This is the quickest way to come back from being afraid, feeling attacked, feeling shocked. As you do this, can you feel how the room is changing? How the a level of mental activity is really slowing down. Breathing out through the base of your torso, breathing in, receiving this grounding, nourishing, supportive energy. Mother Earth, Mother Mother, supporting. Infinitely abundant grounding energy. Trusting this being dependent on the Mother. What does that feel like? 
it is possible to think. It is possible to have emotions and still be grounded. We do not have to abandon this part of our body in order to think or to act. In a similar way, as you breathe out now, begin to inhabit a place a few fingers, a few inches below your navel, and a few fingers inside of the front of your body. You breathe out, you drop down into the belly. Easy, natural in-breath. As you breathe out, maintain some strength in the lower belly. Don't let the lower belly collapse. Maintaining this chi, this prana in the lower belly as you breathe out. Easy, natural in-breath, dropping down into the lower belly. Can you not be paying attention to your belly? Can you be paying attention from your belly? Can you hear the sound of my voice from being centered? What does it feel like to be centered? One can think from being centered. One can act from being centered. This is a much more appropriate energetic stance from which to go into the world. It's the place of action, of energy, of power. This is the power that supports the open heart. If we are centered in this way, we do not then need the environment to be safe and supportive in order to keep our hearts open. So can you open your heart and be centered and be grounded all at the same time? Once again, feel how remarkably different the room is than it was just five minutes ago. If you were sitting at the bedside of someone who were dying, if you, some, if you were someone who were dying, and there was somebody who was saying all these wonderful, clever things from their head, versus another person came in and they were inhabiting their body in this way and they were in their heart, what a different message that would be bringing. No fear. Letting the power of the universe flow easily through. Heart spacious as the sky. So for those, of with, for those of you with your eyes open, could you open your eyes? So that this isn't just something we do as a meditation. It's a way of being in your body. Can I be grounded and centered as I'm talking? Who's talking? Whose words are they? Who's listening? The point of all this practice is eventually getting to the point, the place where we begin to directly, nakedly experience that we are so, so much vaster than who we think we are. Maharaji is not somebody in a picture who died in 1973. He is truly living in each of us. And until we begin to inhabit our energy bodies in this way, until we have the confidence that we can be that, then it takes this humility to go back and do this groundwork, to, to 
be that person who can live with a wide open heart, to be a, a compassion warrior. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.